Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. During the David Cameron era, or perhaps what we should call the George Osborne era, the British government pursued a policy of trying to get as close as possible to China, both in economic terms, but also in broader cultural and political terms. At the time, they described this activity as the golden era, hoping that this would open new vistas of opportunity for Britain. With hindsight, some people now describe that as the golden era, allowing China into all kinds of aspects of British political, commercial and academic life without really understanding the implications of this policy. Somebody who's put an enormous amount of work into understanding that is Sam Dunning. He's an investigative journalist and researcher with a special interest in China. And I'm delighted to have him here with us today in the bunker. Sam, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Sam, let's just jump straight in. Perhaps you could uh, explain to our listeners a bit about that sort of backstory of what happened in the Cameron Osborne era with UK-China relations. And perhaps right at the beginning, let's get into why did they pursue that policy? What were they doing and why did they pursue it? Well, I guess uh, one place to start this story is in the uh, financial crash of 2008-9 when Western economies uh, suffered enormous difficulties, whereas, uh, to some extent, China um, endured, endured quite effectively. I think after that, um, a lot of people in the financial industry and a lot of people thinking about the economy generally started to look to China as a sort of source of infinite growth uh, now, obviously, after the coalition government uh, was elected, I think they too were thinking of this. And after a few sort of diplomatic spats, there was an occasion, I think, when Cameron met uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, the reaction from the PRC was quite extreme. But after a sort of few things like that, this sort of set of policies, really, which now people are referring to as the golden era, started coalescing around 2013. I think the, the phrase golden era was coined by George Osborne in 2014. But really, I think it was all about trying to get rich, really. I think it was sort of viewed as a get-rich-quick scheme for Britain, uh, and China was seen as a sort of problem-free, easy way to sort out some of the, the issues facing the country. And then what were the key elements of that golden era? We'll all remember the picture of David Cameron and Xi Jinping having a slightly incongruous pint of beer, I think, in a village yeah. pub in the Chilterns. But what were, what were the big sort of serious um, serious activities that, that took place under, under that umbrella? Well, I mean, that pub itself uh, offers a bit of a, a light onto the issue because it was in the wake of that notorious now photo shoot uh, was brought up by Chinese investors. And indeed, that was a large part of, of what we saw going on over the course of this time. For example, an enormous degree of investment by Chinese companies, both quote-unquote private companies and state-owned companies in British infrastructure, including critical national infrastructure. A sort of opening of the floodgates to all manner of, of scientific and academic collaborations, many sponsored by UK government agencies such as UKRI, which is UK Research and Innovation. So some of this was led by the government in a proactive way, uh, and some of it was creating an environment for private actors and indeed some or many Chinese state actors, uh, to do their own thing. So it was a real range. And there were obviously also sort of headline projects, headline property investments, such as uh, some in, in, in London, uh, you know, worth over a billion pounds in, in many cases, but also headline technological 
collaborations such as those involving uh, Hinkley Point Nuclear Plant and, and another nuclear plant, Sizewell, Bradwell. And one of the key areas that you focus on in your work, and I'd like to really get into in much more detail, is the area which you've, you've mentioned of research, innovation, cooperation with universities. Again, in most cases, if a university is able to leverage finance for research, people would say, well, that's, that's great news, fantastic. We've got great universities in this country. It feels like something where there aren't many downsides. So what, what, what is special about the way China operates that makes this a difficult and sensitive topic? Well, I think, you know, one of the best things about British universities, you know, they provide an atmosphere where people can say what they like. And that's really the best atmosphere for all kinds of innovation, for all kinds of discussions about the humanities, so on and so forth. But what I fear is that what we've seen with uh, Chinese investment that has come into our universities is that all too often it's been accompanied by this sort of insurgent atmosphere uh, in which certain topics are not up for discussion. And I think actually... If that is the case, then it risks uh, undermining what makes British universities so great. And, and you, you know, you allude to my work. A lot of that is focused on, on events at Jesus College, Cambridge, where I know, having spoken to the students, that this atmosphere in which certain things are not up for question has, you know, seeped in. And it's impossible not to connect that to the, to the money that's come to the college, in this case, for example, from the Chinese government itself. But I also think, you know, when we're discussing this kind of thing, we, we have to take a broader view. Um, I mean, in the case of Jesus College, one thing that I found quite ironic was that um, it was mentioned in a report by the prime minister's brother, another Johnson, whose name actually escapes me, who, who at the time when this money was given by the Chinese government to Jesus College, well, he was named as, as a person responsible for that grant by the college itself. And yet when he recently wrote this report about the what he called the China question in academia, he has some kind of academic role himself now in which capacity he's writing about this. But when he came to writing this report, he mentioned the, the, the sort of scandal at Jesus College, but without mentioning uh, his own role in winning this grant money from the Chinese government. And I've mentioned this because I think it's important not to conflate the issues around freedom of speech at universities that are associated with Chinese funding with the rather separate issues around freedom of speech at universities that are associated with the so-called culture wars. What I've seen is perhaps the Conservative government looking to conflate these two issues, but as the case of the Prime Minister's brother kind of shows, they're very separate the issue around freedom of speech and, and, and China, for example, human rights and so on at universities, was in part created by the Conservative government, whereas I think the, the other set of issues, so-called cultural stuff, is separate. So I think, yes, it's, it's good in theory, but there are these issues that are, that are China-specific. You know, when there's Chinese money coming in, you often see those, those issues arise. So let's let's get into this case study of Jesus College in Cambridge. Obviously, a big, grand, uh, ancient institution. Perhaps you could start off by saying how what is this connection between Jesus and China? Because Jesus is the host, if I'm not mistaken, of the Cambridge University China Centre. What is that, and why does it matter? Well, I, I should I should clarify that it's the China Centre at Jesus College, and not obviously associated with the university, but. The people at Jesus are very keen for this kind of 
so superficial aspects of the naming to be, you know, clarified in the press. But to answer your question, the college has over many years sought to cultivate a wide range of initiatives relating to China. Uh, and it really is a range. There's the China Center, of which you mentioned. There's the Global Issues Dialogue Center, which after a scandal taking place last year was actually renamed. It's called the Global Issues Dialogue Center now, but it used to be called the UK-China Global Issues Dialogue Centre, and it was funded by this grant from the Chinese government. And there are also other initiatives at the college. Uh, For example, I know there's an economic crime conference taking place there in which I I believe Chinese funding and support has some role. And then there are initiatives outside the college but connected to it. For example, the um, Cambridge China Development Trust. And they've been going on for years, especially influenced by the fact that a number of people fellows at the college, academics and professors and so on, have had an interest in China for many years. And again, it's typical in the sense that um, many of these sort of initiatives were given proper form and funding and so on during the golden era, after the Conservative government began to promote this new policy. You mentioned earlier about how the, the presence of Chinese money has had the impact of sort of affecting freedom of expression, freedom of thought. Can you give us some specific examples of of how that manifests in, in this context of Jesus College? I mean, absolutely. And, and this relates to some stuff that has already been published um, in The Times and, and Open Democracy, a, a very good website who I did some work with. One example is that there was um, an internal meeting at the college about its China initiatives, at which... The professor responsible for the China Centre, Professor Peter Nolan, essentially a number of fellows and students raised the possibility that the China Centre might wish to hold an event on what's happening in Xinjiang, which is the mass incarceration of hundreds of thousands, probably over a million at one point, uh, Uyghur Muslims. And the response of the director of the China Centre was was essentially to, to, I mean, the student who who raised the possibility was, was sort of the implication was that he, he, as a philosophy student, he should be trained to think differently. I think that's what the uh, the director of the China Centre said. Um, and he also reeled out a whole load of, of lines associated with Chinese propaganda. He misnamed an association founded by Uyghurs who had left China and, and then went on to talk about how it had been funded by the American um, National Endowment for Democracy, whose aim is regime change and so on. So essentially, in response to just a suggestion that the China Centre hold an event on a topic that the public is greatly interested in, the response was sort of denial that there was anything to discuss, a sort of uh, bullish undermining of, of the credentials of people raising this possibility. And that's just one example. I mean, there's another, another example from 2019 when a, a PhD student tried to organise an event on what is happening to the Uyghurs and also happening to the Tibetans. And uh, there, there was some kind of hoo-ha in terms of giving him permission to run this event. And in fact, this event w- was run past the director of the China Centre, seemingly, and it's not clear from the Freedom of Information emails I got back, but seemingly under the aegis of the PREVENT programme, which is meant to relate to radicalism in the UK. So this event on some of the worst human rights abuses in China was sort of almost cancelled and there was this sort of real debate it seems from the, from the emails as to whether it, there might be some connection to extremism and and so on and so forth really you know worrying stuff i would say anyway so there's 
you know, actually countless examples just from this one educational institution of freedom of speech seemingly being threatened by a concern about what impact that might have on the college's Chinese partners, I would say. Would it be fair to characterise this that in the context of Jesus College Cambridge, which, you know, as we've identified, is a highly regarded, you know, elite historic institution of education, that there is a sort of in-practice veto over kind of discussions of China's policies and, and activities, particularly where as regards kind of controversial issues to do with Xinjiang and human rights? Well, I think actually uh, the students at the college have been quite successful in pointing out um, the situation as, as you described it. And actually there, there, there has been some response. I mean, I know fellows there are now leading some kind of inquiry into the matter. So happily, the college community is aware of the kind of situation you're implying exists, which I think did exist. And, and, and I think something will and certainly ought to be done. But yes, I think there was an atmosphere, actually, at the college. There's a motivation to pussyfoot around those issues when prestigious initiatives uh, with which the college is associated rely on collaboration with Chinese partners. And if there's a sense that talking about human rights, for example, might put those collaborations in jeopardy, then it's no surprise, it would be no surprise to see the people responsible for those collaborations, you know, try and quieten people down when it comes to, say, human rights. And then there's another area which I think is worth examining a bit, which is actually the types of research underway. So if I'm not mistaken, there are examples where Chinese-funded research is taking place here in British universities, but the research that's being undertaken is into very sensitive areas of sort of scientific endeavour, which of course could have implications for Britain's national security and could be misused in the Chinese context, again, possibly with human rights violations or other types of kind of military and and defence activities. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is obviously slightly separate to the humanities stuff. This is technical scientific research, but there's a there's a real range. I mean, there there has been research into, for example, Chinese PhD students and and other academics who are affiliated with military universities in China, coming and working, uh, I think this example I'm thinking of is at Cambridge, at the top uh, physics lab in Cambridge. So we have basically Chinese military scientists studying amongst the, with the, some of the best minds in, uh, from all over Europe and the world at Cambridge. Now, I know how scientists work, actually, because my grandfather was a nuclear physicist, and he, during the Cold War, had to deal with these kinds of issues too. Scientists like to work together, and I applaud any scientist who wants to collaborate with anyone from any, any kind of scientist from any, any country in the world. But when uh, your colleague, for example, is coming from an authoritarian state, and you don't know really exactly what access they might have in, in, in your lab and in labs... Uh, elsewhere in the university, you have to bear in mind that this person has family back at home in an authoritarian state who are open to coercion. They may not want to be trying to steal uh, secrets from your lab, but, you know, grandma is being threatened with the gulag, essentially. We know how this works. Um, and it, yes, it's happening across all kinds of areas of study in the UK. You, you remember some years ago, an amazing new material was discovered by, I think it was actually... Uh, this highlights my point, two Russian scientists working in the UK 
uh, graphene. So this was discovered in the, in the UK, first properly isolated, I should say, in the UK. And uh, George Osborne himself intervened to sort of promote collaborative work on graphene with China. Uh, and there was a lot of that, and I'm sure much of it was very fruitful. Uh, but now China is, is the leading graphene researcher in the world. This is a material that is going to have all sorts of applications, it's thought, not least in, in the military sphere. Again, it is a case of not doing due diligence on how exactly the Chinese institutions and individuals plan to bring the research back to China and what they might plan to do with it. And of course, some of this work is is financed by Chinese businesses, uh, including Huawei, which has become very well known and, and become very controversial. Can you say a bit about some of the activities financed by Huawei here in British universities? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Huawei has spent an amazing amount of money on financing uh, research of various kinds, but also on an amazing amount of money on PR. I mean, believe it or not, there is to this day, I believe, certainly it was there some months ago, a, a BBC produced, and I should say it's produced by one of the BBC's commercial subsidiaries or something, page describing the amazing journey of Huawei, founded by a former guy from the, formerly from the Chinese army, a BBC sort of propaganda page, not even available in the UK. Um, so there's a lot of money on PR and research. Vis-a-vis research, there's obviously um, the sort of technical uh, research into 5G and how we might sort of create the next generation of, uh, of telecommunications. What that means in practice, by the way, is transferring information between computers at a you know, immensely faster rate than is, than is currently done. Now, if you're a normal person using your email for you know, most jobs, and that includes my work, actually, text-based, it might not be that significant to be able to send your email four times as fast, right? Because it's pretty quick anyway. But if you're, say, uh, an engineer who's sending over detailed graphic, 3, 3D graphical designs of you know, a complex uh, structure, then being able to send data really quickly to your collaborators can be can be important. So this 5G stuff is especially critical when it comes to other areas of, of sort of high memory, as it were, um, scientific research. And th- there is a lot of uh, Huawei funding in the UK in this area. Huawei is, is, is actually a sort of world leader in this kind of research. But, you know, its status as a world leader has been partly cultivated during the period when UK universities and universities around the world were collaborating without the due diligence, I would say, with, with Huawei. They're also funding research into sort of, and this I find more sinister, and again, it, it's something I know a lot about because it relates to Jesus College, but funding research into uh, what's termed global governance. Now, Huawei is involved in some of the worst stuff that is going on in Western China in terms of creating a surveillance architecture that is beyond even what George Orwell might have you know, imagined in 1984. Streets where every inch is covered by, by CCTV cameras that have facial recognition, so on and so forth. Huawei's role in this is, is not disputed at all. And yet, again, it's Jesus College involved in, in uh, receiving money to publish a Huawei-sponsored paper on global governance there are clear uh, ethical issues here that I don't think were looked at at all. And again, you know, this is presented as a sort of research, the holding of a conference, various experts, but you see these flimsy, inaccurate claims dropped into the white paper, the report that came out of this Huawei-funded work. For example, the claim that 
Huawei had made all of its 5G intellectual property freely available for the world. So to answer your question, Huawei and, and, and other Chinese tech companies fund quite a lot of, of research in the UK, and there are, there are some clear issues uh, relating to that. Um, and that's been going on for a number of years. Right. So I guess um, sort of coming towards the end of our time, I think a couple of key questions. One, I suppose, is the devil's advocate point, which is, okay, so China pursues its influence globally. And one of the ways it does it is through through institutions, whether it's, you know, academic or otherwise. But America does that too. Other wealthy countries fund research. Is China any different? Is China any different? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people in this country who disapprove of many aspects of the way the United States runs itself, looks after its people. My feeling is that, yes, I think actually uh, there are ways in which China is different. You know, by, by, I would say, the most critical measure, it's the largest economy in the world, and that's fine. We want Chinese people to be rich and prosperous. The problem is not just ruled by the... Uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, which is incredibly brutal and looks like it essentially wants to wage war on democracy worldwide. But not only that, it's ruled by this this guy who is especially bent uh, on on doing just that. I think um, if you are going to criticise, say, overly national nationalist rhetoric in this country or in any other country, it's something that's very very popular criticising this kind of rhetoric. Just look to Xi Jinping's rhetoric. I mean, it is incredibly violent, ultra-nationalistic, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, I stopped short of saying this is some kind of, you know, really um, Hitler-like dictator in the making, but you have to look at the profile of the regime in China now. We know what it's doing. We have a sense of what it's doing in Western China. The rhetoric is clear. It's now, by some measures, got the biggest economy in the world, growing at an incredible rate. You know, it, it adds the UK's GDP onto its economy, what, every sort of four or five months. We do have to think about China a little bit differently. And I'll add one last thing in, in regard to that, which is that we really lack the literacy, actually. We, we really lack literacy about China, for example, basic linguistic skills. So I just think, yes, we actually do need to think a lot more seriously about uh, the UK's relationship with the People's Republic of China. We really need to up our game. Brilliant. And I guess my final question is, what's the role for the government in this? Because I can imagine plenty of institutions such as universities would say, look, we're not qualified to make a sort of due diligence security investigation of our potential partners. Uh, so who should be doing this and why are they not doing it at the moment? Well, good question. I sympathise with universities. I sympathise with the people at Jesus College, to be honest. They were encouraged, very much encouraged, by the George Osborne, David Cameron governments uh, to set up many of these initiatives. They were not told to do careful due diligence. They were not given any resources that would help them perform careful due diligence I don't think that has changed that much. I think there's a sort of weird pattern of behaviour in the Conservative Party uh, whereby there's a sort of piling on of, of criticism of, of universities and other institutions for partnerships with China, but absolutely no taking the responsibility, for example, by Boris Johnson for the actions of, of former leaders of the Conservative Party. I don't think the resources are there to do this due diligence properly at all. I don't think when it's at the more kind of extreme 
uh, intelligence the end of it. I don't think our intelligence agencies really have the capacity to properly monitor everything that's going on because so much has been set up. Um, it doesn't look like there's any roadmap to deal with these problems properly. And knowing, I mean, this is just my opinion, but knowing Boris Johnson, so on and so forth, I'm not sure that that, that even if there were a roadmap, that we you know we'd probably take several wrong turnings and then crash into a tree. Put it that way. I think people who you could criticise, like Dominic Cummings. Actually, I saw an interesting um, quotation by him. He said during his time in government, they they did start a process to review many of these partnerships. People might be interested to hear that. But, you know, I don't see any signs of that review happening quickly enough, being undertaken intensively enough, so on and so forth. Um, I think a lot more work needs to be done. Well, thank you very much. A lot more work needs to be done. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will be very keen to see what steps the government takes to do that. Sam, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us in the bunker. Thanks for listening. We have a new Bunker Daily out every Monday to Saturday with our main panel show on Tuesdays and a break for our sibling cast, Oh God, What Now?, on Fridays. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite app so you never miss an episode. Remember, you can back the bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early and advert free, get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jana Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>